Before I introduce today's episode, I want to say a big thank you to my supporters on Patreon who believe in my work with A Fostered Life and are offering financial support to help me create this podcast, write my blog, and create content at A Fostered Life's YouTube channel. I'm really encouraged by their support. If you find value in what I do here at A Fostered Life and you're able to spare a dollar or two or five dollars a month to support the free resources for foster parents and prospective foster parents that I create, please go to patreon.com slash a fostered life and become a patron. You choose how much you give each month and every little bit helps. Patrons get early access to new content and occasional shout-outs here on the podcast. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Mom. Hi, Maureen. I also invite patrons to give input on future content, and I share occasional intimate glimpses of my home life, such as what I'm thinking about as I cook dinner or a new recipe I recommend. Thanks for considering supporting my work. And now for this week's episode. Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 18. When most people think of foster parenting, we think of children who are experiencing neglect or abuse, being removed from their parents and placed with someone else, either a foster parent or a relative caregiver. But there is another type of foster care that many people don't know about. Every day, over 40,000 families around the world are forced to flee their homes due to community violence, war, famine, natural disasters, and persecution. Unfortunately, many children become separated from their parents or primary caregivers due to death, illness, or imprisonment, and they find themselves living in refugee camps sometimes for years. For refugee minors, the U.S. State Department identifies children overseas who are eligible for resettlement in the U.S. but do not have a parent or a relative available and committed to providing for their long-term care. Upon arrival in the U.S., these refugee children are placed into the Unaccompanied Refugee Minors Program, and they receive refugee foster care services and benefits. My guest in today's episode is Barbara Tantrum, who's a trauma and attachment therapist, as well as a refugee foster parent. I invited her on the podcast to share about this unique form of foster care and to give some insights to folks who might feel called to provide safe and loving long-term homes for children who are currently living in refugee resettlement camps overseas. If you're interested in learning more about this program, I'm including links in the show notes for this episode to the U.S. Administration for Children and Families website where you can search Refugee Foster Care to learn more. I am so grateful for Barbara's willingness to join me today, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Well, before we launch into the topic, I guess, that I had today, I do want to just take a moment for this moment that we're living through right now, because it's incredible. And we've had about 10 days now to get our heads around a new normal. How have things been in your home and with your family? Pretty, pretty good, mostly. Um, Me getting over pneumonia has kind of made it, I think, a little bit less real because I've kind of been sick Mm -hmm. and I've only been now getting back to normal. So I think that I think 
it felt a little like, oh, mom's sick and we're just all kind of on vacation. And now it's starting to become more real as I'm getting better. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, we're eight people living in our house. So it's, I'm actually kind of glad I'm not like living alone because I think it would be harder. Yes. Um, yeah. But there is like a lot of kids that are getting a little stir crazy. Yeah. Same. Same here. I mean, overall, I'm completely <laughs> grateful that we are a family of seven, five kids and two adults. And it's been amazing because our teenager, um, who is about to turn 17, she has really stepped into, really stepped up to being more of like a third parent role. And, and we haven't asked that of her, but she has like volunteered to take the kids one at a time for sort of special play dates in her room and, you know, just um, participating in our work of trying to make life as structured and pleasant as possible in spite of the fact that the kids are definitely like, okay, this was fun. When are we going back to school? <laughs> you know? So, yeah. um, and also I, I did a talk last week on routines, which, um, couldn't have been more perfectly timed for the season that we're in just because of how, yeah, no kidding. yeah. <laughs> but I actually have had to revisit, believe it or not, my own talk because in the, in the stress of everything that I'm, that we're all going through, I just sort of for the last couple of days stopped creating schedules for the day because I just like my own ability to like get my head around things, I think was starting, like the grief was starting to set in, you know, and it's yeah. very hard to function when you're grieving. Yeah. So, um, in fact, before we launch into the topic at hand for today's call, I did want to just put a plug in for your flourishing foster parent coaching call, because grief is just something that's going to set in. I think for a lot of people in these coming days, I think as the novelty of stuff wears off and the reality begins to set in, I think grief is going to be a big thing. And I've actually, the talk that you did was part of the flourishing foster parent you know, coaching library, but I've actually made it available for people who just want to get that talk as a, as an option, because I think we all need some tools right now for processing grief and for helping our children process grief. Oh, that's great. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. So I'll send you a link to that too. And I'll post that here in the show notes that if people do want to get their hands on that, they can, because I just, I have, I listened to it again and I was like, oh, what I'm feeling right now is grief. That is what I'm experiencing. And I wouldn't have had the word, I don't think to put to it if I hadn't been thinking about it in light of, of your call. So thank you for oh, that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but moving off of COVID-19 and onto foster care and foster parenting, we recorded a wonderful interview or we, we had a wonderful interview a few weeks ago that was meant to be a podcast episode and the audio recording of it never appeared. I don't know what happened if I accidentally deleted it or if I didn't record it in the first place. But anyway, we are redoing uh, an interview we've already done. So I appreciate you being willing to come back on again and to kind of have this conversation again with me. No problem. So this podcast is for people who are interested in foster care and interested in hearing from the many voices of those who make up the foster care system. And there is a type of foster parenting that I never knew existed. It just never, I don't know why it didn't occur to me because we read about folks like this in the news in terms of, you know, refugees and people who are coming in seeking asylum. But, um, 
we, um, but I didn't know until I met you that there is a particular designation for foster parents that is just for refugees. And I would love for you to share a little bit about the specific nature of the type of foster parent that you are. Great. Yes. So I'm a, I'm a foster parent for international refugees. It's um, a UN program and it is um, overseen by a couple different agencies in the U S depending on what city you live in. I live um, just North of Seattle. So I go through the Seattle branch. So that's overseen by Lutheran community services. Um, and the agency, the branch part is called refugees Northwest. And um, so they foster refugees from lots and lots of different countries. So Ethiopia, from Eritrea, from um, DR Congo, from Guatemala, from several different countries in Latin America, from they've had kids from Burma, from basically anywhere in the world that's had conflict um, and that has refugees, um, they accept kids from refugee camps. Yeah. And so the kids, you just said they accept kids from refugee camps. So these are not children who are like at the border being separated from their parents at the border. No, that's, that's very different. Mm -hmm. So, um, although they do accept some kids that are asylum seekers and that's a, that's a different, it's a different system, but some kids in the program are the asylum seeking kids. Mm-hmm. That's a minority. Most of the kids in this program um, come from refugee camps. Okay. So you have a background in trauma therapy. You are a, a therapist, a trauma and adoption yeah. therapist. Um, I can only imagine what kids who have I mean, first of all, they've lived through whatever the circumstances are of being a, a nation in conflict. We, we've all heard about the Congo. We've all heard about, you know, various parts of the world that are in terrible, terrible conflict. So they live through that and then they're separated from maybe their parents or family or other people they know. They're in a refugee camp in their country displaced. And then they're brought to a nation where people don't look like them and they don't speak like them. Can you talk a little bit about that journey for your kids, what that's been like and what it was like for you, how you handled bringing in children into your home who have kind of that whole total disruption of their way of life? Yeah, it was it, it was a lot. I mean, you're definitely bringing in kids that have had a lot of trauma. There's no kids in this program that haven't had a lot of trauma. But you're also, you have to realize you're also bringing in the kids that are the survivors. A lot of kids in this program are kids that are just very dedicated to completing their schooling. A lot of kids in this program go to college. They're, they're the really hardy kids <laughs> that really yeah. do want to survive. And for our kids, we got, our first placement was three kids um, from DR Congo, and they were aged at the time they were aged two, seven, and twelve, which is very young. Most kids that come through this program are teenagers, mm. so that was very, very young. And they didn't speak a word of English. Mm. We learned about um, twenty words of Swahili, and so we just were trying our best to be as safe as we could be, and as calm as we could be, and we tried. Um, to just be a place that that they could be, they could feel safe. And we tried um, really hard just to be as calm and safe as we could be. And it took, 
I mean, it took a couple of years, I think, before the kids really started feeling safe with us. Mm-hmm. And that's, but uh, I mean, when you work with kids in the domestic foster care system, it's, I mean, they speak the same language most of the time, but a lot, I mean, kids come from pretty dramatic trauma stories um, in the domestic foster system as well. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that, I mean, I wouldn't say our kids are any more traumatized than some of the kids I've worked with in domestic yeah. foster care either. So Yeah, yeah. The uh, they they came and they sort of began life with your family. Now, did you have children prior to these three? And I'm assuming they were siblings who came to live with you. Yes, they're siblings. They're siblings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had one bio child, and we had one daughter that was from Ethiopia that was through a private arrangement. We were friends with her family, and I was pregnant at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So that we went wow. from two kids to six kids in that span of that first year that they came. So, yeah, so it was, it was wild um, that year that they first came, but they're amazing kids and very resilient. And one of the kids, when, after they'd been here about a year, um, I actually asked her, I said, you must've been so scared when you came, like you'd hardly, you know, you didn't know anything about us. You were coming to come live with people. And she said, I figured anything had to be better than where I was. Wow. And so that's kind of, if you think about like resilient kids, like that's, that's kind of how she was. And she's, and she came and she, honestly, she came just determined to, she was one of the ones that came just determined to kind of attach to us. And she declared we were her parents and yeah, it wow. was amazing. That is. So when we think of foster care in America, I know the more you're in foster care discussions, the more it's emphasized that the goal of foster care is reunification, first and foremost. So for those of us yeah. who are domestic foster parents, um, we are really expected to understand that our role is a temporary role meant to be. It may lead to adoption down the line, but you know, initially it's the plan is for reunification. How, how is that different for folks who are coming as refugees? It's different in that um, before they are part of this program, the Red Cross actually exhausts any hope of trying to find a familial connection in their country and in the refugee camp. So um, usually the Red Cross spends at least a year or two trying to find parents or relatives before they're eligible for this program. Mm-hmm. And when they, then when they come, if, if they do find connections with um, relatives, like it's not uncommon for kids once they come to find, Oh, I found an aunt that immigrated to Australia or I found mom and she's in a refugee camp in Uganda or something like that. But the problem with the way that the immigration system works is it's not like reunification is usually possible, Mm -hmm. um, at least until the child is an adult. But I mean, of course we would facilitate communication or relationship as best as we could, but as far as like custody or as far as, those types of things go, it's just way more complicated because you're talking about kind of international issues. Yes. Things are just far more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. In a system that's already very, very complicated. And, you know, you add the international stuff. Yeah. Go ahead. So I was going to say, so when, so basically when, um, when you accept custody of kids in this program, they, they tell you, you need to think of it like you are permanently 
accepting custody of this child until they're 21. Okay. And that's what, that's what you think. You're not allowed to adopt mm-hmm. because you can't, and you can't adopt unless you can terminate on a child in custody, but you are permanently going to have this child until they're 21. Now it doesn't always happen. Of course there are disruptions, mm-hmm. but that's what this program wants foster parents to be signing up for. You don't want to sign up. Oh, I think I'll do it for a year or two. It's, it's a, it's a commitment. How and actually, we did just, oh, we did just adopt. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, one of our children turned 18 and we, um, we were able to adopt her, which was a very joyous occasion. That's so wonderful. How did you guys, you and your husband decide to do this type of foster care? I think we already had one international child and um, we've always, we're a very international family. My husband is from New Zealand Mm-hmm. And I think we've always, we've always been drawn to international stuff and we wanted to, we wanted to, wanted to kind of, we really had a desire to serve where we were needed. And when we heard about this program and that there were kids in refugee camps and they, all they needed was more homes, mm-hmm. that kids were kind of on a waiting list and they needed more homes to be able to place them. Yeah. That really, um, that really struck our hearts. We really wanted to be to be of help. And yeah. that, that's really what did it for us. So, wow. And we love children. So yeah. <laughs> I think that was a big piece of it too. We really love children. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone were interested in pursuing this type of foster parenting, how would they go about it? First of all, you have to see if it's available in your city. So just so you know, the United States is, I believe the only country that is doing this type of foster care for unaccompanied minors from refugee camps. There were a couple of other countries doing it for a while, but I believe the United States is the only one currently doing it. And then you have to see if they are doing it in a city, in your city. There's only, I believe, 14 cities doing it in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So you have to, so you can Google it. <laughs> I'm yep. not sure. Yep. So um, I know I'm in Seattle. I know Seattle and Tacoma both do it. Okay. And so you, you would have to find out if your city is one of the eligible cities, um, the, 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 the agencies that do it are Lutheran Community Services, Catholic Community Services, and I believe Bethany Community Services does it on the East Coast. Okay. I'm curious to know how your kids have stayed connected with the culture that they came from. I mean, have you, did you make an effort to keep them connected with others from their country? What are some of the ways that they've been able to stay stay rooted in where they come from while, you know, continuing to grow their roots here? One of the ways that we've done it is through the ethnic churches in the area. Mm-hmm. That's a really big way for some of our kids. Another way is some of our kids have biorelatives in the area that they've stayed in contact with and done things with them. Yeah. The, that's one of the reasons that they, the cities that they choose to do this program in are cities that have a lot of diversity in them and have large immigrant populations. And that's one of the reasons they choose to do this, I believe, in those, in those cities and in those areas is so that the kids that come will have a community connect, to connect with when they come. Mm-hmm. So, like, we can buy, you know, we can buy the food that is familiar. We can... They get their people group that are familiar in this. The high school that our, our kids attend, Amharic, is like the third most common language 
which you know, first is English, second is Spanish, third is Amharic, which is the main language of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that our kids have our kids go to school. We we chose to actually live in a, a pretty diverse area, and our kids go to school with people from their ethnic group. So I think that that's so we've actually tried to be really thoughtful about where we live and where we um, and how we engage with. I we also. We attend and teach Sunday school at an Ethiopian church that's been a big um, a big source of community for us. And even though only one of our kids is Ethiopian, I think that also being part of that ethnic community has been really good, too. Wow. It's so fascinating to hear about a family that has been formed through such unique circumstances. And, you know, our family has been formed through foster care and adoption. And it, you know, it feels normal to us. And even hearing your story, it's like, it's, there's aspects of it that are very familiar and feel normal because it's similar to how we've formed our family. But in the grand scheme of things, it is quite remarkable, you know, um, how your family has come about. Do you feel in the day to day, do you have a a sense of, of kind of the uniqueness of your family's way of life or has it just become your normal at this point? That is a great question because I feel like in some ways, our family feels really normal to us, um, and it doesn't, but you're right, it is actually very unique compared to most other families yeah. that I know. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, but it's it's also really, it's also very much um, in line with how I want my family to be. Like, I love that we cook Ethiopian lentils alongside um, there's some Congolese beans that we like making. Like, I love that we, I love that we have kind of a rich cultural diversity and history in our family, and that we we celebrate different holidays, and that we have a lot of those traditions in our family. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, there's only a couple of us that were born in America. Yeah, you know, my husband's from New Zealand. We have kids from DR Congo, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. Mm-hmm. So it's. I, I love that about about our family, and I think that that I mean I think that really reflects our values. Yeah, I'd love to circle back to this concept of grief because I know for our family, grief is something that comes up a lot. Actually, grief over birth narratives and birth family um, questions and things like that, and then grief over just. F- this sense of things that have been lost. And, you know, I've experienced moments of grief where I've realized that because of how we formed our family, which I wouldn't change for anything, there are certain things that have entered all of our lives because of the nature of the trauma that our kids have experienced in their, their past. And just that we all live with it. It's just something that we all live with and it affects everyone. And I hadn't really contended with that prior to stepping into this, you know, I would love to hear if you wouldn't mind sharing just some of how you have helped to equip your kids and yourself to process grief as it comes, which it does for pretty much any adoptive family. Anytime you take a child who is being raised by someone other than the woman who gave birth to them, there's going to be a pretty heavy weight of a blanket of grief that is part of that. And um, there's also joy. And I'd be the first to say there's a lot of joy in our house. But I wonder if you'd be willing to unpack that a little bit, just the the, the role of grief and, and even how you've helped your family to process it. 
That is a great question. We talk about grief a lot in our family. We also talk about anxiety a lot in our family. And we talk about we talk about PTSD a lot in our family. These are just things that are very much kind of normal pieces of conversation in our family. And like this morning we were I was snuggling on the couch with one of my daughters and um she was saying something about how a couple weeks ago before the whole COVID-19 thing happened, I had a conference at her, at her school and it was right before class started. And as I was leaving, one of the kids said, Oh, that's Abby's mom. And apparently some of her classmates didn't realize that I was white, Mm -hmm. that Abby's mom would be white. Mm -hmm. And she got kind of a bad time on the, on the um, schoolyard about that or something. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of had a conversation with her and with a couple others, like, like it can be hard that, you know, when we're different colors and how people don't understand that and people can look at us weird. And I, I feel like that's just a really kind of normal conversation to have in our family. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of, and we also ended up hearkening it back to when she was little, it was actually a little bit of a shock to her, even though we've always talked about how I wasn't her birth mom the first time, cause she came when she was two. Right. So it actually, and she remembers me like giving birth to Nathan, my son. Mm-hmm. And so I think that she, it was actually a little bit of a shock to her when she actually realized I hadn't given birth to her. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and so when we talked about that and we talked about how that was hard for her. And so we, I feel like one of the biggest things that we do is we just talk about it a lot mm-hmm. and we, and it's not, it's not a bad thing to grieve and it's just a, a normal part of what we do. Yeah. And it's totally okay for everybody that we all grieve and it's totally okay for everybody that there's these awkward times about, oh yeah, Abby kind of got a hard time at school because people didn't realize that her mom was white, mm-hmm. even though like her, her friends all know I'm white because they've seen me, but not everybody knows I'm white. Right. And so there's that kind of, there's that kind of stuff that happens. Yes. Yes. So, Yeah. Yeah, I can, I mean, I can relate to that. And I'm feeling envious in a sense that your kids at least have each other. And they're not in the sense of because we have one African American son, and everyone else in our family is white. So when we go somewhere, everyone assumes that he's adopted, and they assume that our other children are not. And, you know, it's, he he has definitely been grieving that and trying to help him process, you know, I've gone into the school lunchroom when I've been at the school doing something, I'll just go in and if it happens to be lunch, I'll go over and see, see him. And a couple times I've gone over and the kids at the table just incredulously, and they're, they're little, they're only six. So they're kind of really yeah. blunt, you know, and they're just yeah. incredulous. That's your mom. And, but she's white, you know, and, and, um, and, and it, it's tough because we love each other so much and we don't look at each other and first and foremost notice the differences. But, but then when other people are calling it out, it just has such a power to wound, I think, and undermine the love that you have for each other. Well, if for him anyway, not, not so much for me, but it's, it is a tough part. It is a tough thing. Yeah. So yeah, and mm. I think for my daughter, she just kind of says, why does that have to be the thing that everybody says? Yeah. Like, why does that always have to be the thing? Like, what? oh, wow, your mom's white, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
you have a book coming out, Barbara. Yes. I'm sorry. That was an abrupt transition. <laughs> no, no problem. I'm processing. Yes, September 1st, um, yeah. I have a book coming out. Yes, you do. And I have, before we spoke the last time, I had not seen it, but now I have had a chance to look at it and it is so good. I'm so excited for this book. So I'm really happy oh, to be putting. I like it. Yes. Yes. So why don't you tell a little bit about the background of the book, why you wrote it and um, who it's for? and uh, how, how folks can get their hands on it? Well, so I get asked a lot about what you should read. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that um, I feel like I often say, like, there's 10 books you should read. Um, and a lot of books, too, that are really good books with a lot of good information are, like, hard to get through. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to write was I wanted to write something that was, like, had all the information, yeah. <laughs> but was also really easy to read. I wanted something that was easy to read, easy to engage with, something you could read in between your kids melting down. Because, yeah. you know, when you're parenting hard kids, you don't necessarily have a lot of time to read. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to read something that was, like, easy, engaging, and had, like, a lot of good information in it. Yeah. And what I kind of, my goal was, is to have a chapter's worth of information about almost everything you need to know about parenting adopted and traumatized kids. Yes. So like I did a chapter about, I did actually, I cheated a little, there's a couple chapters about attachment, Mm -hmm. but there's like a, there's like a chapter about food. There's a chapter about sleep. There's a chapter about, um, other diagnoses like ADHD and autism. There's a chapter about, kind of almost everything I deal with in my practice. Yeah. And, um, and even like there's a chapter about how to do a life book. Like there's a chapter about like, I try to kind of cover everything that I work with with parents and kids yep. to try to kind of give a really broad range of stuff um, to kind of to help. And then also I gave resources. Like if you want to know more about attach- attachment, here's some great books. Or if you want to know more about discipline strategies, here's mm-hmm. some great books. Mm-hmm. Um, in light of like, these are good books to read if you've got adopted and traumatized kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's no overstatement for me to say that your teaching and your voice was, I, we met at a support group that I attended and it was the first support group that I went to. And I was really, really struggling. We were new foster parents. We had a very challenging home life and we did not know. We were just totally Ill- unequipped, not even ill-equipped. We were unequipped for understanding how to parent a child with a history of serious trauma. And I went to this support group and I was just like this deflated beach ball sitting there. And uh, it just happened to be a night when you were doing a teaching on... Oh, you were talking about self-care. You were talking about attachment. You were doing kind of this hierarchy of needs. And and it was just so much, it was the beginning of my education that really helped me begin to get tools that actually helped me. Um, prior to that, I was literally just trying to survive the day, just trying to cope, um, too stubborn to give up. So that was never even on the table, but I didn't have the tools to do it well. And I didn't understand why things like time out w- wasn't working with this kid. And I was like, well, you know, how are we supposed to discipline this child? You know? And, and I just remember you, 
you taught that night and a lot of the things that you were teaching were the opening of the door for me to a whole world of understanding trauma-informed parenting. And a lot of it, as I look back on that night, I remember that night just being like, this woman is so, she knows so much and she's doing it so well. And I'm never going to be that person, you know? And, um, years later, I'm still not as good as you. I can tell you that. <laughs> we all have our days. We all have our days. But, um, no, but I, but I can just say like hearing from you, was a turning point. And through our, through knowing you, I ended up getting connected with, um, Leslie who became our therapist and you guys developed a wonderful model of therapy. Could you talk a little bit about the patch model that you guys have developed also? And I'm assuming that that is also, I mean, I mean, I know that it's a lot of what you talk about in this book too. So. Absolutely. Yeah. No, our model of therapy is the patch it stands for Parenting Adopted and Traumatized Children, and it's based off the ARC model, which is a very well-recognized, well-respected model for treating child trauma. And um, the idea of the, the ARC model that Patch is based on is that um, it's kind of like a pyramid. So you have to do the bottom blocks on the pyramid before you can start working on the top blocks. Mm-hmm. And the bottom blocks on the pyramid are all the things um, that – kind of make a kid's world safe. So it's um, parental affect management, which means the parents are calm and have consistent responses. Um, Attachment, so that there's like, you know, people that kids can attach to, a consistent routine and response. So that means, so basically the bottom blocks are all like, is the kid's world safe? And is the kid's world predictable? And is is there like safe people for the kid to attach to? Mm -hmm. And that's like the bottom part of the pyramid. And then the second level of the pyramid is um, emotional regulation. So the idea is, is that you have to kind of have those bottom pieces in place before you can work on the next level. And then the next level would be like executive functioning kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people come into our office with kids that are having executive functioning issues um, and to be like, you know, my child can't figure out how to brush his teeth in time management um, or my kid is completely emotional and dysregulated, but like, you know, mom is yelling at them and they don't have a routine. And, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, if they don't have a routine and their parents um, aren't consistent, we can't even talk about emotional regulation yet. Right. So that's the idea of the patch model is the patch model is kind of about the whole family. Like how do we have the the child and the family have peace, have a very consistent, have the bottom blocks all in place. And then we can start working on like emotional regulation and then um, executive functioning. Yeah. So that's the idea of the, the ARC model it's, um, and the patch, the patch model is basically how do we bring the family together? How do we work on attachment? How do we make a peaceful environment for everybody? And how do we help the child and the, um, the parents attach? And it really is, it's mostly, we mostly use it for kids in either in foster care that are about to be adopted or kids that are adopted. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it it works really well. I've, we've we've been developing it for many years, and it it I think it works really well. I've seen great stuff with it. Absolutely, and I can attest to that as someone who has come through that program with one of your therapists, and just how we continue to implement the tools, which are basically those. You know, I yeah. I mean, we we basically have special time type play dates with each of our kids 
as a way of carrying through what you guys do at th- at the therapy sessions, which are essentially we're playing together. Yeah. And I'm um, working on That's great. that, but I'll tell you that I remember you talking about the importance of maintaining a calm affect. And I remember thinking that is not going to be possible for me. I, for a couple of reasons, I mean, one of the reasons that I thought it wasn't going to be possible for me was because my child only responded to me once I started screaming. And it took me a while to realize, like, we have to undo so much. Like, there's just so much that has to be undone. But um, what hope can you give someone listening to this who maybe is someone who is kind of stuck in this place where they are well-meaning foster parents who feel like the only thing their child responds to is when they scream at them or when they are harsh with them. Because I've been there. And I mean, it's like when I'm kind to him or if I'm, if I'm gentle with him, he absolutely ignores me. I, um, I read a book once that, um, said that, women's greatest, like, um, us middle-aged moms, our greatest shame is how much we weigh and how messy our house is. Mm -hmm. And I would say for foster parents and adoptive parents, it's how much we yell. Yeah. (laughs) Because I would say almost every parent I work with comes in and is ashamed Mm -hmm. because they get so frustrated and they yell and they're harsher than they want to be. And most parents come in and they're saying, you know, this isn't, this isn't how I want to parent. Right. And, um, and I want to say it's okay. I, I, we get it. And most of the time people yell because they don't, they don't know what else to do and they're frustrated and they don't have better tools. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to say it's okay. You like it. I understand that it's usually coming from a place of deep frustration and love for their child. Um, But I also want to say that your kid's not going to regulate until, until you guys can figure out a system and a way to parent in a calmer way. And the reason why is because when you yell, your child is going to be triggered and they're not going to be able to regulate. So I would, I would approach it from a way like shame isn't going to help every, every parent, they yell, they get to a place of shame. They're like, I'm a bad parent because I've yelled. The problem is the shame isn't going to help. Like I know parents feel bad. I feel bad. I yell at my kids sometimes too. And I Mm -hmm. feel terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that shame doesn't, doesn't help. What does help is figuring out better systems and figuring out better ways to do it. What, what helped me is I actually got to a point where I said, okay, I'm not going to yell at my kids anymore. And I'm like, and that felt crazy. I'm like, can I do that? <laughs> what I, is that possible? Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I decided, I just kind of decided I'm not going to yell at my kids anymore. And every time I feel like I'm going to yell at my kids, I'm going to count to 10 out loud. That's what this, I know this sounds crazy. This mm-hmm. is like what people in cartoons do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I started doing that. And every time I wanted to yell at my kids, I started counting to 10 out loud. And you would not believe how well this works wow. because my kids, my kids know that I'm angry because mm-hmm. I'm counting mm-hmm. to 10 out loud. Mm-hmm. But I, what I do is I tell them, I go, I don't want to yell at you. And I'm trying really hard not to yell at you. So I'm counting to 10 to give myself 10 seconds to calm down. And most of the time, by the time I get to 10, I don't want to yell anymore. Hmm. And um, this has been, for me, this has been kind of a kind of a magic fix almost. Yeah. And it's really funny because my kids have now started counting to 10 out loud when they get mad. 
Yep. And they do it with a lot of sass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Like, Yep. laughs> one, two. And I don't mind if they do it with a lot of sass because at least they're, you know, doing a tool to not yes. yell. Yes. Yes. What and a wonderful occasionally thing. Occasionally I occasionally I still do raise my voice and I'm like, oh I'm yeah. trying not to. But mm-hmm. and that's okay. I'd like, you know. Yeah. There's grace. None of us are perfect. Yes. But, um, but I work really, really hard on not yelling because I know when I yell, my kids get scared. Yes. So yeah. 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 And, and same here. I, I've been really helped by a program called positive parenting solutions, um, which is just one of, I'm sure many positive parenting, you know, programs that are out there. I did the triple P positive parenting program also, um, But for Mm -hmm. some reason, the positive parenting solutions is the one that really stuck for me because it has uh, specific tools that are instead of yelling. And if you have them ready ahead of time, then when you get to that point, you know, like one of them is when then, you know, when you've done this, then you can do that and then walk away when then and walk away. And so instead of standing there engaging, that's been a huge one in our, in our house, um, for helping yeah, me avoid yelling. Yeah. And, um, but also I love what you just described because you're modeling for your kids, some good emotional regulation, you know, um, they, they need to know that we get triggered too, but, but as the adults in the room, <laughs> we, we ideally are going to be the <laughs> ones who are modeling a better way to, you know, to respond. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, no joke, but, and this, I'll tell you this coronavirus, uh, time of being, um, quarantined and stuff, I have really had to go back to my tools because my, my, my own stress level is getting higher and higher. And in that place, I'm never naturally inclined to go to my healthy emotional regulation. So this is a good reminder. Um, I hear from people a lot who are looking for a good trauma therapist, but they maybe live rurally or they're in a place where they just don't seem to have access to informed, like trauma informed children, child therapists. And I'm curious to know if you or the therapists that you work with in the patch model offer online clientele, is that something that you're able to do? Um, we're starting to a little bit. I, I see one client online because mm-hmm. they talked me into it and they live rurally. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, it, the hard part about online is that it's very hard to interact with children online. So okay. we do more like parent coaching stuff mm-hmm. online mm-hmm. Um, because it's hard to like do filial play, which is the type of therapy we do with young kids. That's really hard to do online. Right. Um, so there are options for online for people who live rurally, but that is, it is a lot tougher um, just because I think, I just think child therapy and now we're in the middle middle of trying to figure out how to do therapy online. Like that's Mm -hmm. the big question, right? We're in the middle of right now. Yeah. And it's just really tough to do with kids online. Yeah. So yeah. So that is really tough. If you, um, I would definitely say do a lot of research, read a lot of books, and try to find a therapist that at least is trauma informed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually a, a chapter in my book about how to find a therapist. Yep. Yep. That's great. And, and one of the things you really need to be careful about with um, adopted kids with therapy, with therapists, if your child has had a lot of trauma, they might do something called parent shopping and that can be disastrous with the wrong therapist. 
So I just, I would, I would say the wrong therapy is worse than no therapy, which sounds mm. terrible, but I, I would say be very careful about the therapists that you choose. Just make sure that they're trauma-informed. Make sure they've done at least some reading about adoption and trauma issue mm-hmm. issues before you see them. Um, a, there's, there's some good general therapists that can handle a kid that's been adopted as long as they've done some research and some reading. Yeah. I know what you mean about parent shopping. I wonder if you'd be willing to unpack that just a little bit more for those listening. Oh, no problem. So um, a kid that's had trauma, um, particularly particularly the type of trauma that they've gone from, like particularly foster home to foster home, mm-hmm. they will, they do something, we call it parent shopping, that they'll kind of, it's like they subconsciously don't believe that they're safe and that this is their permanent home. So they're always on the lookout for their next home yep. and they're cultivating their next caregiver. So this, ha- this uh, therapist is a very tempting target for this. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, is that they cultivate their relationship with their therapist and they try to form an alliance with their therapist against their foster parent or yep. their adoptive parent. Yep. And I've actually had to step into a couple of relationships. I've stepped into a couple of therapeutic relationships after that kind of blows up with a the former therapist and mm-hmm. it can get really ugly. So yeah, yeah that's yeah. why I caution parents about that. Yeah. It's so important for people who are adopting children with a history of trauma and especially attachment disruptions to really understand yeah. um, what what that does to a child's ability, um, to make emotional attachments and what it looks like when that's happening. And I think, um, you know, we, we've benefited from a lot of reading and study and therapy that has helped us, but it was nothing that I knew going in. So I just can't emphasize enough how important it is for people to become lay students of child psychology and especially, uh, child trauma psychology. Absolutely. So, wow. Well, thank you so much for your time today again and for all that you've shared. And I'll put some links in the show notes to some of the things we've discussed, including where people can pre-order your book, which is coming out September 1st. The investment that you're making, not just in your own family, which is obviously wonderful and beautiful, but in many other families that I know you have helped over the years, including mine, is just so wonderful. And I'm just grateful for your work and your your vocation and everything that you've done to pour into foster and adoptive families who are seeking to do family life well and to flourish. Thank you so much. I'm honored that you invited me on. You've been listening to my conversation with Barbara Tantrum, a trauma and attachment therapist and refugee foster parent. To learn more about becoming a foster parent for refugee children, please visit the Office of Refugee Resettlement page on the Office of Administration for Children and Families website, which is acf.hhs.gov. Barbara also has a new book coming out this fall called The Adoptive Parents Handbook, a guide to healing trauma and thriving with your foster or adopted child. The book will be released September 1st, and you can pre-order your copy using the link in the show notes for this episode or by going to afosteredlife.com slash resources. Be sure to subscribe to A Fostered Life podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're enjoying this resource, once again, please consider becoming a patron of A Fostered Life on Patreon. 
To learn more about how to pledge as little as $1 a month to support this podcast, as well as the YouTube channel and blog, please go to patreon.com slash a fostered life. For more information and resources for foster parents, please visit afosteredlife.com where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. If you're a foster parent who's feeling like you're out there on your own, consider joining the Flourishing Foster Parent, a community designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find info on the Flourishing Foster Parent at afosteredlife.com FFP. One more thing. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening, and thanks for caring about foster care.